Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your illustrious host for Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national nonprofit consulting company with recruiting and strategy for all. And with us, as always, is Ashley Watterson, our producer. How are you doing, Ashley? I'm tired, Matt. I know. You know why I'm tired? Because... The Senate decided in 2022, a full 250 years after the origin of daylight savings, that now is a good time to not do that anymore. And I don't understand why those of us with young children have been suffering for all of these years. I have to say that the one thing that I like about daylight savings time is that I can always just complain that I'm tired. And now I can't complain that I'm tired. (laughs) No, I don't, honestly, I don't get it. And also it's dark and then it's light and then it's dark and I'm so confused. And honestly, do farmers even, I mean, are farmers even a thing anymore? Like, isn't it just like, like big old machines? Also like the invention of the headlight. <laughs> <laughs> a full, what, 100 years ago? Pretty sure farming equipment figured out how to use headlights. You know what I mean? You know what's funny, actually, is that this issue of not going back is the one thing that Congress can agree on. No, we, we can't actually agree whether Putin is a war criminal, even. We're getting there, to be fair, Congress. But you're right, Matt. This is the one thing that it was, like, unanimous. Infrastructure, the need for bridges and roads to be fixed? No. No. But mm-hmm. daylight savings, just not needing to be a thing 300 years later? Yes. Right? Right? Isn't that ridiculous? Cheers to the one thing that Congress agrees on. (laughs) So can I tell you for this episode, and by the way, I want to be really clear with everybody, we are on our way to season four. How in the world did that happen, Ashley? How? How did that happen? I think despite the many pleas for us to stop and end this insanity, we just kept going. Mm. We just don't listen. Mm. That's how it happened. I mean, have we lost your mom as an official listener? it's moment to moment Mm. your mom is kind of like our litmus test and so if we if your mom stops listening and by the way if my mom stops listening this show is over so we've made it to our last show of season three we are moving on to season four i'm so proud of us and this episode with my friend shelby i gotta tell you i loved every minute of it shelby is awesome she's already well beloved in our office and our listeners will get to find out why as they listen to this episode Yes, I agree. We talked about shit face. We talked about when the shit hits the fan. I feel like that really honestly is the most important thing that people are going to get out of this show. And I think the Matt Splain is just going to be a lot of fun on this one. And by the way, if people stick around for the outro, I will tell them what I found out in my research after it came up in the episode, what shit hits the fan is like where that derived from. So even though I do make light of it, Shelby's spectacular. She really is running a phenomenal organization. I am very impressed by her. The genesis of her career is interesting too, because she started as a dancer. Pardon me. She is still a dancer. I was a teacher and I'll put it this way. Teachers don't necessarily make the best administrators and performers don't necessarily make the best executive directors of arts organizations. You know, this is not a natural leap, but if you can do both, I think that really speaks volumes to how well-rounded and intelligent and, you know, all the skill sets that she has. So it's very cool. How did you, as a teacher, now move forward to be the producer of this show? That's the question. (laughs) 
I think it was dealing with 30 middle school kids at one time, Matt, prepared me to be able to deal with you. Mm-hmm. It took 30 of them to equivocate to one of you in terms of the patience that it takes. I'm going to take that as a compliment because it takes like 30 brains to be able to be one of my brains. And that's how I'm going to assume that you meant it. Go right ahead. And on that note, is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we go into Shelby's interview? I hope everyone enjoys. And again, stick around for the Matt Splains at the halfway point of the episode. And don't forget to stick around for the outro at the end. Hello, my friend, Shelby Williams-Gonzalez. How are you? I am doing well, Matt. Thank you. I cannot tell you how happy I am to have you here. So like in in our office, uh, you know, we do a ton of recruiting. And so we have our favorites. And I promise you, I don't say this to everybody, but like my staff was like overjoyed when they knew that I was interviewing you today. You're like a superstar in our office. I hope you know that. Really? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, no pressure, but oh, that's so sweet. Well, Why? I, I, <laughs> I mean, you know what? Uh, I'll tell you what, our listeners or listener, who knows how many are left, uh, they'll, they'll be the judge of that. At the end of this episode, we're going to put that out there that our listener is going to be the, <laughs> the, the final vote on whether or not my staff should hold you to this like superstar status. So let's see. Let's hope this interview goes well. Okay. Whew. I make no promises because I'm not that great. But and by the way, as we get in, as we get in, I'll be drinking more. So who knows? Who knows, Shelby? Who knows? Um, <laughs> so uh, so I didn't know this, and if I had known, I would have fired you immediately. But you are not drinking right now. Only right now, like seriously, like the last two weeks, please. <laughs> like there is enough alcohol in my body to sustain me for, <laughs> for a while it is purely you know I'm f- in my 40s and I was like hey let me just take a pause let my body resettle and so I can hop back on that wagon <laughs> that is all all right well I'm just going to tell you that I am not so we were my husband and I were just in the UK and only drinking gin and tonics I didn't do any brown and so I'm back and I'm back on the brown wagon so i like that but i can tell you my my drink of choice though is just like a little spritzer a little vodka with some uh bubbly water or as adults call it mineral water but i like to call it bubbly water and it's just a hint of lemon Mm. that's all i need that's all you need that's all you need well so we're going to pretend that that's what you're drinking okay uh cheers to you my friend to a next hour Mm. and and everybody judging both of us so you are right now the ceo of inner city arts and we'll get to that in a minute we'll get to that at the end because i want to make sure people know about the organization and give to the organization but you have such an interesting background in the arts and uh i want to kind of i want to talk about it and kind of how you went from being in the arts to wanting to run a nonprofit because for the one listener left who's listening to our show, I mean, I talk shit about nonprofits all day long. And so to run a nonprofit, <laughs> like, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot to the CEO, right? Yeah. So uh, why don't you start, if you don't mind, by just like talking about kind of how you got into the arts world? Sure. Um, 
I mean, okay, none of this was planned. I graduated from Berkeley with a degree in dance and anthropology and sort of this, I don't know what I was gonna do. Um, I was dancing with companies, you know, but it wasn't enough to sustain me and to sustain a lifestyle that includes like paying rent. (laughs) Um, So I started teaching as well. And I love that too. I am the third generation of educators in my family. My grandmother was a kindergarten teacher. Wow. And then my mom was a elementary teacher and then a literacy coach. And yeah, so like teaching is just, I think, in my ethos. It didn't feel foreign to do that. So so I started my professional life as a teacher. I worked for LA Unified. I was a traveling dance teacher. And I worked with the California Dance Institute and the Music Center. And I was truly like one of those gig to gig teaching artists, right? I drove so much across town to make it to my classes and everything. Um, And then I was starting to get burnt out. And a friend of mine was like, you got to come to this organization called the Heart Project. And I was like, what? what?" You know, and she's like, it's predominantly visual arts, but they need a a coordinator in the classrooms. And I was like, so I won't be teaching dance, but you, she's like, yeah, but you can organize classes well, like just give it a shot. So that's really how I got into nonprofit is just realizing that I could have a positive impact. And that's also when I fell in love with like the high school age. I was like, I think this is my niche. This is my jam. So here's what's really interesting. The last podcast that, that came out right before yours uh, is a woman named Lori Lacroix who runs Smoon, which is a contemporary ballet company in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And we were talking and she was like, if you are going to go into dance and you really want to be like a performer, um, the chances of you making it are like, zero. And even if you do, you're just not going to make any money and it's going to just be terrible on your body and all these things. And I was like, oh, we're not selling, you're not selling dance at all. <laughs> um, and, you know, so when you were thinking about dance, really thinking about being a performer, did you think about being on stage, like for a company, like performing at the music center? Or was that something that you had thought about? Yeah, it was. Um, so I love dance. I mean, it really is like who I am. I think I am the most myself when I am dancing and performing and choreographing. Um, And so I knew that I was always going to do that in a way. But I also knew coming out of Berkeley and like even in college, rejecting being a part of like the company that was on campus, which was Graham Technique. And we go into a whole thing about Graham Technique and Martha Graham, beautiful movement, great way to train the body. But I was like, I don't want to be in a Graham company. So I was very particular on like what I wanted to do. And I was in a company um, that was outside of the campus that introduced me to both West African and African contemporary movement, um, which ultimately brought me into what I still am doing is the Brazilian um, contemporary dance, right? Because that resonated with just me as a person, me as an African-American woman. I was like, okay, this is my jam. Um, But I was realistic. I mean, there, it's not like there are not that many, one, there are not that many Afro-Brazilian companies. I'm in the one that is in Los Angeles and yeah, we perform a lot. I've been at the music center, I've presented there, but it's not sustainable. So it's like I knew from the get-go, whatever company I joined wasn't going to be a national ongoing touring company. I mean, we tour, but 
not enough to pay the bills. Not enough to pay the bills. And it's so hard on the body too. So you have a daughter, right? Yes. What if she came to you and she was like, hey, mom, like, I really want to be a professional dancer on stage. What would you tell her? Well, I'd tell her to, one, get in class, start, and I would support it. I mean, because even if that is your ultimate goal, the path that you go on to get there, there are going to be so many other opportunities. So it's not lost. You don't fail if you don't make it into, you know, the New York City Ballet or the Joffrey, right? Because you're building all these skills that are going to be applicable to anything you do. So I would totally support her. Although my kid is 12 and (laughs) if she, if she came and told me right now, like, I want to be a ballerina, I'd be like, did you get your head? Because she hates dance. (laughs) But in the theoretical, that's what I would tell her. (laughs) That's really funny. So I, my mom was, you mentioned the Joffrey. My mom was the chair of the Joffrey ballet on the board uh, in the, was it the 80s? I'm going to go with the 80s, sure. And uh, she used to drag me to the ballet and I hated it. Um, But now I really do appreciate ballet. But as a kid, like it was like the last thing I wanted to do, um, except for looking at all the male ballerinas in their tights. Uh, That was what I cared about. But yeah, I am always really impressed by anybody who makes it in uh, dance because it really is just so cutthroat and also just so difficult of a life. Uh, yeah. And I think with dance, well, okay, so this is like my bias lens, but I think with dance, like we really have to rethink what making it means, right? So, I mean, I think like I did make it, I have made it as a dancer. I've been in a company, been in multiple companies for well over 20 years. I've toured, I've choreographed, I've been reviewed by the times and newspapers, you know, but I also have this other side of me. Thank you. I totally take the whole thing back when I say make it, because you're right. Making it means so many things and it's so unfair to say that. So first of all, I want everybody to know that Shelby just schooled me. And, <laughs> and but you know what, but I appreciate that because truly you're right. And I am so full of myself, Shelby. Like I want to speak on stage to people at the music center and I want them to listen to me. I'm not a good dancer. I'm the only gay guy who's not a good dancer, but, <laughs> but I think I'm funny and entertaining. So tell me like what it was like to be on the stage at the music center. Um, what's it like to be on, on any stage? It's it's exhilarating and I still get nervous like that moment right before you step on which I love I love that like I can still get nervous because I'm giving myself to people right not only like yes I want to make sure like that like I'm in the right spot I don't want to mess up my choreography all those things are people enjoying this that's all going in my head while I'm performing which is also a really fascinating place to be because you're so hyper-present, right? Uh, I think that's the most exhilarating moment when you're on any stage and you're dancing with your company members. And I can think about like where I'm going next. What's that person doing over there? Like you're seeing it all. Like, I don't know, you can break it down like the matrix or something, right? It's that is like the best feeling. I think it's, you know, and sometimes it feels like there's a part of me where I actually leave my body. So with Vive Brazil, when we do a lot of the traditional dances and traditional meaning, um, we dance for the Orishas, which are like the gods and goddesses. 
So when I put on that regalia and like my face, like we dance, you know, your face is covered. Um, It changes your sense of space. And there have been times where I will go through things and I don't feel like I'm back until I leave the stage. It's going to sound really hippy dippy, but I, I really feel like there's a moment where you just become a conduit of energy. I love that so much. But what you just said, like, you know, that that conduit, um, I mean, to me, dance is so beautiful. And like when when I go to watch it, it's just you are you are right. You are that conduit. And and there is this this energy there. And OK, you got to tell me when you're going next. Got to watch you do it. Um, sure. will, will you please tell everybody just one more time the name of your company? Sure. It's Vive Brazil. And V-I-V-E-R. That's v- it. Where do we find it? Well, we have our website, Vive Brazil Dance Company. Um, so that's how you can find us. Uh, weekly classes have gone back in person at Crenshaw Yoga and Dance. So we've, we've done a few podcasts with theaters um, and with theater companies and during the pandemic, obviously. And there are some nice things about what happened during COVID for us in terms of Zoom and all of that. But I will say that, the, that you know, for example, one of my friends runs um, a theater here in LA and unless you're here, you can't see the show, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you could afford a ticket, you can't see the show. And Zoom allowed people all over the world to be able to be part of her audience. And even though you're not in person, which is totally different, you still got to be part of it. And I hope that as we go back in person, which we are, that there is still maybe every once in a while something on Zoom for folks who can't be there, who can't afford to be there, who ha- you know, who are working and can't do it at that time, right? I do hope that that continues. Something- I do too. And I think it will. I think because people are realizing even from, you know, whoever's running the, the books at theater companies or dance companies and looking at the finances, it's not a large overhead right? To just stream your production and you're reaching so many more people. So it feels like it's a win-win. So why not continue it? It was really great. So like, uh, for example, you know, during this time, I saw my sister-in-law who I have not seen in years, but she started acting and is a part of a company now in Detroit. And I got to stream in and watch her performance. Like, like this is cool you know and I want to support you in your in your artistic endeavors so yeah like I don't think that will go away I really hope not and even if it's not obviously as present I do think it's really cool that you know people in Brazil can go and watch a concert in downtown LA I think that's really cool so I do hope that that somewhat continues okay so you went to going into teaching at the Heart Project and then uh, from there went into management. But I do have a question before we get to that. How does dance and organizations like um, uh, Artworks, like uh, Inner City Arts, like YOLA, all those kinds of arts programs, Mm -hmm. why are they so vital? They're vital because it makes the space for someone to discover something about themselves that is purely unique, it is theirs. And so not only is there that creative journey, but there's that ownership, right? Whether it's you made something with your hands, you painted something, you're dancing, it's your body. There's like true ownership. And every person, a child, an adult, 
should have that moment where you have ownership about what you're doing. And I think for me, for dance and movement, like the fact that you can move your body, yes, you can mimic somebody else, but ultimately it's going to look different on you. So here's what kind of also came out of COVID and something that I'm learning. When I was in nonprofit and actually working, running nonprofits, I was in the homeless space. And my passion as a lay leader is the developmentally disabled world. The arts world has never really been like so important to me. And then during the pandemic, when you saw hunger and, you know, people not having internet, so they couldn't go to school and all these things that you were like, I need to, I need to give money to, you know, to those causes, but the arts, the arts are so important. And I have learned in all of this, why they're so important. I would love for you because I'm not that smart for you in, in your most eloquent way, because everything you say is, why should people want to fund the arts, especially in times of the people living in poverty and people not having food and all those things? Why are the arts so important? I mean, that's tough, right? If you only could give to, to one organization, yeah, I know that arts won't feed you. You know, if I give you an art class, you can still be hungry. So I get that, right? But the arts to me are so important, especially in this time, because it's healing. And honestly, I think had you asked me that question maybe two and a half years ago, I would say that the arts, it's about the creative process and challenging yourself and coming to an answer that you knew was not there when you started on the journey, right? And I still believe that. But, you know, even just reflecting on me being in an in-person class for the first time in two years, like, oh my God, like my heart was like, boom, boom. you know, that, <laughs> you know, and when the Grinch, like his heart grows 10 times bigger, like, I think like the crust of my bitterness, like it crumbled off my heart and was like, ah, yes, you are still human. <laughs> so yes, it's about the process, you know, 2020 Shelby would be like, it's about the process and challenging yourself and, and overcoming things and like not knowing where you're going, but you're going to get there. And 2022, Shelly's like, and it also, it feeds you. It makes you whole. It makes you more humane. It makes you more empathetic. It makes you, oh, honestly, a, a whole person. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't be an asshole and be an artist. And there are artists who are assholes, that's a whole other podcast, but like, if you're really coming from this place, you just, you can't because your, your heart is opening. That's lovely. And again, for somebody who doesn't really honestly have um, any talent, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the arts, I really do appreciate it and value it when I watch kids, also adults, but when I watch kids like do a watercolor or build a sculpture or go on stage and, you know, dance or try and recite a poem or whatever. It is so important to their growth and their self-esteem and just like you said, their empathy. And so, yes, for everybody who's listening, all programs are important, but the arts are something I think that we don't think about in times of crisis. And it also is an escape. And so what you do makes me so happy. Do you think that you can teach me to be a good dancer? Like, do you think that's possible? Yes. I mean, I dance like a white guy, Shelby. Like I dance like a white guy in the room. That's okay. We'll just lean into that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, 
The other thing I would say, and this was just sort of my aha moment actually earlier this week, I was at the Getty Museum for the Imogen Cunningham exhibit, and she's a photographer, you know, like same time as Ansel Adams, the 1920s and through the 70s. So this is my relationship to visual arts, right? It really changes your sense of time. And I mean that in all aspects, like when you're standing in front of something that catches your eye, it, it could be just because you like the color, the, the form, the structure, the whatever it is, like time changes, right? Because your phone, the text, the, the other people, the selfie moment, like all of that shit doesn't matter. It's just that one moment. And that's what I think everyone should experience and kids, especially in this digital era where we're all on phones, we're multitasking constantly. Like we have to remind ourselves to pause, to have that moment of stillness and take something in. What I really like about not being on zoom and being in person is that I can't multitask, right? Like, cause when mm-hmm. we're by the way, just like, no, when I'm on Zoom, I'm never paying attention to anything. I'm looking at my own face. And so I think that that, what you just said is so important because we do need to every once in a while, just take a moment. And I think getting off of Zoom and getting back into person will help us to also continue to do that because my attention span was shit before, but now it is fully shot. Yeah. Coming back to like, let's do one thing. Right. Right. It is going to be interesting how we get back to doing that one thing. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Why you're right. Going to a museum, looking at art, going to a show, watching performers on stage. You aren't doing anything else. And there is something lovely about that, truly. Mm -hmm. Okay. See? Thank you. You didn't know I was going to talk to you about the arts. You thought I was going to talk to you about being a CEO, but look at all this. No, I love this. Yeah. I love it. So you went from teaching art at a nonprofit to then running a nonprofit. So Mm -hmm. I want to know what made you kind of want to continue in that running a nonprofit? Because when you're teaching art, you're in the programs, you're with the kids, you're like being creative. When you're running a nonprofit, it's financials and fundraising and dealing with asshole board members and all kinds of things like that. So what made you want to be an executive director? Yeah, good question. So um, it was multiple things that conspired to this decision of mine. Um, I realized as I was teaching dance that I was actually getting more tired uh, and it was draining me from being the performer that I wanted to be, if that makes sense. So it was like, which I kind of felt like, which one do I want to do? But this is also a time I was a new mom, uh, you know, so it was like, okay, but I have to take care of my my child like I gotta step up my game um and so I really started to think about how else I could be involved and specifically this was like short term so I I I would even say it was like little steps first realization I'm getting burnt out on teaching but I still love dancing but I can't just not do one and do the other because that won't pay the bills and take care of this baby I have now in this world um And I loved the heart project. So it was was really like, how can I be involved with the heart project? But I want to step out of the classroom. That was step one, right? Um, And so really going into administration to support other teaching artists, I was like, okay, this is cool. I like this. I like this jam. So I'll speed it up. I did that for a few years. 
I was like, well, I can do more. Like I actually am fascinated by budgets and thinking about how to really plan and grow this organization. You know, it just worked a different muscle in my brain. So it's not like there was this moment where like, I'm going to be an executive director. It was like, okay, now I'm going to do professional development for teaching artists. And then as I did that more and planned uh, themes and our programming, and then I was the artistic director and like, I really got that under my belt and, you know, hum- being humble and realizing that I had a team and I, I came to the same point where I started to get tired. I was like, okay, I know how to program. I know how to create partnerships with museums. I can do this. And I'm seeing my colleagues who are are also growing, like, I could step out of this role, like maybe someone else can do something better, then they can take it to the next. So I actually did step back. And so I went into development. There's clearly a, a drive in me to just try something new. But I also am very thankful that I was surrounded by people that were like, I believe in you, go for it. So I have a lot of phone calls and a lot of people come to me and want to be executive directors. And we've talked a lot about this on, on many podcasts. Mm-hmm. Day that you got that executive director, that ED position, what advice can you give to our listeners who want to be an executive director? Like what was the biggest lesson in that job, not your current job? Yeah. What was the biggest lesson that you learned that you can kind of tell somebody so they don't have to go through it? The biggest lesson is you've got to find your own personal balance of being involved in everything, but letting other people lead. So whether it's programming and I had an artistic director and I was like, well, these are my ideas. Just do this. I was like, "Mm, actually, no, let me, let me take a pause. What are you thinking? And you know, keep the conversation going. Same with development. I was like, well, this is what we're doing for our fundraiser, just like this. And I was like, no, let me take a pause and let's hear what our newly appointed development director is going to think about this. What are their ideas? So it's really about having your hand involved in everything, but you also know when you need to step back to let other people try their ideas. And at the end of the day, though, when the shit hits the fan, you have to be that leader. Like that's when you're an executive director. When things go to shit and you say, all right, it's on me. You have to have that ownership. Why I appreciate what you just said is because there are so many leaders in nonprofit who have such a big ego that, and by the way, I think there's more ego in nonprofit than I do in for-profit. Oh, wow. I really do. I think there's way more ego in nonprofit. I really do because I think people think they're doing good or they're helping people and therefore they're, their heads get bigger. Yeah, therefore, and, like, uh, I am absolved of all wrongdoing. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I wonder if there's, like, there's got to be some correlation between, like, I'm doing good, therefore I'm better than you. Like, I, and, I, and I think, again, egos are big. But what you just said is that just because you're the executive director and you're in charge, it does not mean that you know everything better than anybody else. And it really is about your team. And you have to build a strong team. And I really appreciate that you said that because you know, it, it is about doing it together. It's not one person. So the fact that you were able to sort of let go, especially in the programs where you came from, this is why you're a superstar in my office right there. That's like the best example I can give, <laughs> truly, because you were able to say, you know what, I'm going to step back and let you do it. And that doesn't happen in nonprofit. 
Thank you. But I will also tell you this, that like a new executive director, I think feels generally like they have something to prove and therefore mm-hmm. it needs to be their idea. They have to be the ones to tell everybody how to do it. You didn't. And yeah. that to me shows that you're a good leader right there. You know what? I, that's, that's funny that you say that because I think maybe if I had become an executive director when I was a little younger, I would have felt like I needed to prove myself, but I became an ED hit my, I think it was like the month before my 40th birthday or right around there. You know, my kid was now eight years old. Like I was established. So I wasn't putting the pressure on myself to prove myself to anybody. Cause I feel like I'd been doing it so long, slowly and gradually building my way up. That it's like, I got to do it my way. I really do want to drive this home that even if somebody gets an executive director position earlier, even if they haven't had all that mm-hmm. experience, even if they weren't even that, like, that knowledgeable about the organization, please remember this is not a one person can do it all kind of thing. And that that is so important. That lesson is so important. So I hope people who hear this do realize that, that at the end of the day, truly, I think you look better as a leader, the stronger the team that you have. Yeah. I agree. And it also makes the work that much more enjoyable, right? I think I stayed in nonprofit because I have fun. You know, I get to work in the arts. I get to see people be creative, both with who we're serving, whether it's the students or the young people that we serve. But I also think that it's important to build that amongst your team. I've always worked amongst other creatives. And if you don't give them that space to get excited and, you know, get those juices flowing, then it's not fun. I don't want to be in a stale environment. Yeah, I agree. So I, I want to go back to one thing that you just said you put earlier, because the expression is when shit hits the fan. Here's what I want to know. Where the fuck did that come from? What does that mean? When no, like, <laughs> what does it mean? Well, it's like when things just go not your way, but when the shit hits, I don't know. What does it mean? It's so... What does that mean? I, I guess it's what so it bad that the shit goes up. It doesn't even travel down. It defies gravity. So that's where the show has been. That's, that's where we've gone. <laughs> right there, talking about shit going up. That's what we're talking about. Hmm. And I, I want to tell you something I learned that I feel like is so interesting. And I feel like even our one listener left is going to be excited about this lesson. Uh-oh. I think I hear that music. I think that means it's time for a Matt Splains Across America. So I was in England, right? And we went to Scotland. We went to Edinburgh. And here's what I learned. Do you know where the expression shit-faced comes from? No. Okay. So back in the day, in the 1500s, 1600s, when folks lived in like walled towns, in these like teeny, teeny cramped apartments, and then they didn't have real windows to a street. And the street was like the size of like, like two people could walk by. Okay. Okay. So if you had 16 people living in this room, right? Three families living in this one room, and you had one uh, pot to shit, pee, throw all your scraps, your dead animals into it. What you would do is you would take that pot and you'd throw it out your window into the street. So in Edinburgh, what they figured out was that they couldn't just throw that shit out at all times of the day because you'd be walking by and you'd get it in your face. So they made a law that they do it at two times in the day, 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. So let's say you are wasted and you're walking through this tiny, tiny, tiny little street and at 10 a.m. everybody basically throws their shit out the window. So they had to say something like, watch out below. Well, if you're wasted, you have no idea what's going on. So you're like, what, what? And then all this shit lands in your face. That's what shit face means. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, learning. That's what you get on this show, learning. 
There you go. I've, I've taught, if nothing else from this show, that's what you get to learn, shit-faced. Okay, so we know you because we placed you as CEO at an organization called Inner City Arts, which is a phenomenal organization in LA. I would love to know a few things. Number one, when I reached out to you to try and steal you, why did you take my call? I took your call initially because I was intrigued that someone I had never met was reaching out to me. The second part was I had heard that Inner City Arts was looking for somebody. And honestly, it didn't even register when I was not looking. It's in COVID. So like, is it appropriate for me to even leave now? So that was the initial. But then after that first call with you and just hearing about the position, I was like, I want to do this for, for me. Again, going back to that, okay, I'm getting those butterflies in my stomach. I'm a little nervous. Like, this would be something big. And that voice in my head was like, then show you should try it. I'm a little offended that you didn't take my call because of my beautiful picture that came up on LinkedIn. But all right. I, I really am happy you took my call, by the way, because I knew before I reached out to you that you were like the perfect fit. And I think for folks out there who are listening, even if you are so happy at your job, it never hurts to talk to a recruiter or think about something else that's out there because you never know. What advice can you give people when they're interviewing? I think that you have to use your own personal resources, right? Like, I think, you know, in presenting to all the panels throughout the interview process, I was reflecting on, on things that I had done. And I could easily say, like, here's something that worked. Here's something that didn't. Like, like that's okay. That's that moment that you are your best resource, right? And your experiences, but not doing it in a boastful way, just like, this is what I know, you know? And I remember that like there, a question came up, um, I think actually when I met with the executive team and they asked me if I had any experience with, um, and I'm going to blank on the term. Okay. When somebody dies and you get that. Yeah. Plan giving. It's plan giving. The plan giving. Okay. Okay. So with that, Right. Uh, and I was like, I mean, I've only had minimal, you know, I did, I wasn't seeking people out. Honestly, it just appeared. So if you're looking for plan giving as like a strategy, I don't have a strength in that, but it was like, I'm just going to be honest, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I know that section. And I think you actually gave me really good advice. Um, you know, and just feedback in general, you were like, you can't be everything to everyone. So be you. And I was like, okay. That I can do. <laughs> this show, obviously Shelby, is about teaching people what shit face means and some advice in terms of like, you know, advice. But here's the thing that every recruiter, every interviewer, every board member who's interviewing you, here's the thing you have to remember as an applicant, that if you don't know the answer, there's no kind of bullshit you're going to be able to, to give us that we're not going to know you don't know the answer. Right. And not spin it so that we don't know, because we know. Right. So, if you don't know, what we want to hear is honesty. Like, if you don't know, tell us you don't know. That's okay. We want to know that. Because at the end of the day, just like you said, Shelby, not one person knows everything. That's what your team is for. So be honest, because we're hiring the, per- the actual person, not the bullshit you're trying to, to spin. So thank you. Okay. And in terms of 
interviewing for your position at Inner City Arts. Is there a question that you can tell applicants that they should ask before they take the job? Yeah, in meeting with the staff, I remember asking them, look, I know it in every, it's not always rainbows and sprinkles. So what's going on? What's top of mind? That you, what's the problem you need to solve for now? Um, and just to hear everybody's response. And it was a myriad of responses, like, you know, obviously dealing with COVID, personnel issues, right? That's what I wanted to know because, yeah, no place is like the perfect Disney movie, right? And understanding it's a large organization. So that's that was really important. And I loved that they were just as honest with me as I was with them. And that was that moment, I think, that I was just like, yeah, I really like these guys. Good. I think that's really important advice because, yeah, no nonprofit, no organization is perfect. So, yes, having that conversation, hopefully they're honest. Yeah. Really helpful. Okay. So I want to go back to something else that we were talking about. You're now in charge of this $5 million organization, and you've got tens and tens and tens of staff members, and, and you've got a big board. What is your least favorite part of being a CEO of a nonprofit? Currently, my least favorite part is thinking about COVID protocols. Honestly, like because we work with schools and we work with multiple schools and I'm thinking about the safety of our teaching artists that are now traveling to multiple campuses, schools that are all saying one thing about how they're handling masks or not masks, you know, sometimes I just, I mean, the executive team sees it on my face. I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to talk. Like, I just, can we talk about something else just for a moment? We can come back to it, you know, but there have been weeks where it feels like 70% of the conversations I'm having is just around those things. And I'm like, I, we got to talk about art and I talk about events and like the things that I love doing. You know, I have pr- friends that are principals that are like, I don't know if I can do another year because it really sucks. It, it's that's draining and nobody has the right answer. Like we're all trying to figure this out. So it's not like we're ignoring some playbook or we're trying to, oh, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to be best. I'm not going to tell anyone, right? No, everyone's like, what the fuck? Um, so yeah, that is my least favorite part. Now, if you could go back and not be in charge, but go back and be, say, in charge of programs or, or, or doing the art directly with your kids, right? So you're not CEOs, one or the other. Is that something that is still appealing to you? Is that something that maybe you'd like, well, maybe I should go back to that world? No. No, you're out. No, so tell, I... me, tell me why. Why CEO over working directly with kids in arts? Yeah, I think my greatest asset is the ability to make connections and be somewhat of a matchmaker, right? And I feel like that's how I'm having an impact, not only on the students we serve, but even this field. Like, I want to make sure that I'm supporting the next generation of arts administrators so that they come into this work and still hold on to that passion for the arts, still hold on to their empathy for their coworkers as you start leading and having to make difficult decisions based on budgets and actuals in front of you. Um, I feel like that's why I'm in this role because I want those kids to see and go, I want to be a CEO, right? That's why I do this. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I have one other question and then we can get out of the CEO work for a minute and talk about inner city arts. But, you know, one of the things that is so vital, I think, to, to nonprofit, to for-profit, but also specifically to us at Envision is DEI and investing in DEI. So as a CEO of a nonprofit, how would you tell someone to really invest in DEI for your staff? DEA is not just, okay, check the box, do the workshop. Um, we did that. We are working on creating a core team that holds us accountable for our next steps. And the core team needs to be made up of folks other than me. Um, and really practice what we preach. I mean, to very simple at inner city yards, I'm really trying to change just the org culture about if somebody says something that you don't agree with or that you find offensive, like, let's just call it out in the space. Like, that's okay. And you, you can do it in a way, but like, oh, excuse me. And I think like, like you stepped a, over a boundary or maybe, right. We can, we have to practice that as opposed to holding it in, um, you know, and I say that like, I need to practice that too. Um, yeah. So DEI is, it's a daily, it's a practice. It's like having a yoga practice. You, you can't just do it once. And I think also it's an opportunity for the staff to understand each other, for your coworkers, your colleagues to understand where you're coming from. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think when you hit that, like, oh, I'm a CEO or I'm executive director, like you're that first. And it's like, no, actually, I'm a black American, I'm a woman and I'm a leader. Like when I go to the grocery store, when I'm in the car, you know, cops aren't like, oh, I think that's a CEO. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have that luxury, <laughs> right? So when you talk about it in your space, in your work, it, I just think it helps folks understand one another better. I, I did another show and, and we talked about being a leader and how lonely it is at the top. And so what I appreciate about what you just said, and if you have staff who listen to this, and I hope that your staff listens to this show, what I do hope that, that people realize is that just because you are the leader of an organization, it doesn't mean that you don't go through the same bullshit that everybody else does, period. You may make more yeah. money. Look, you're, yeah. going, you're for sure making more money than a line staff. Like that's, that's fine, but you're still going through the same BS. It is lonely at the top. And as much as they want you to check in with them and make sure that they're okay, they should also every once in a while say, hey, Shelby, how are you doing? Can I help you with anything? Do you need anything? Hey, can I go grab you lunch, by the way? Like, I really hope that people hear that in terms of you're not just a leader. And I, I hope that people remember that, that every once in a while, you should at least like just check in. So yeah, it is so helpful. One more thing, I just wanna go back to the, the DEI piece for one second. As an executive director, I have my own beliefs in terms of like how you invest in your team, how you invest in your staff, how you grow that next generation up and how you grow your line staff up into leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about what you believe? If you could put any amount of money into a line item in your budget and it's in terms of investing in your team, what does DEI mean to you in terms of truly investing in your team? I think it's preparing folks for the job that they don't have. Yes, I think it's important, especially in this time, to do work around just 
anti-racist frameworks and how to like break down little things. And those little things, I mean, literally I've started taking off the uh, college requirement. You can have a college degree or equivalent experience, like thinking about those things, thinking about mileage reimbursement, right? All those things that we can do, small operational changes. Um, But then in addition to that, real DEI work is investing so that those folks can take on opportunities to try something new. Like I get it and I, I will come from humble pie. Like I got to where I am, yes, drive and work, but somebody also took a chance on me. So I want to pay that forward. Cool. I, I really believe in that investing in your team. And thank you for talking about the degree because I am always fighting with boards or CEOs. You don't need a graduate degree to be really anybody unless you're a doctor. So I'm over it. People are very lucky to be able to go to school. Not everybody can. People are right. very lucky to graduate with a degree. Not everybody can. Oh my God, I'm so on my soapbox. I'm so on my soapbox, Shelby. This is what you're doing to me. <laughs> Get it. Get it. Yeah, get it. Especially now. I mean, especially here in California, it's only getting more expensive to go to college. And then you come out with so much debt. I'm not knocking higher education. I think it's wonderful. And and I wish we could flip it so that everybody has access to it because that's the place that you learn to be who you are. You're learning to be an adult, right? I always say like, oh, that's called adulting. You go to college to practice adulting. And it's okay if you fail because you're in kind of a nice little bubble, you know, for some. And and for some, you're hustling and trying to go to college and live a life. Like, I get it. Even that bubble concept is a privilege. Yeah, it is a privilege. And so thank you for making it either college or uh, experience. Because honestly, I'll take experience all day long. Okay. And one last question on this. And then we're going to talk about inner city action. I'm going to let you go. Um, Would you rather be lucky or skillful, and you can only be one or the other? Skillful. Okay, why? I just feel like that's more of a long game. Skillful makes you more adaptable. Lucky's great, but it feels like that's more transactional. Okay, I can deal with that. So uh, I want you to tell everybody about inner city arts and why inner city arts is so important. Please tell us a little bit more about your organization. Sure. So Inner City Arts, you know, we're located in downtown LA near Skid Row, and it's an organization that's been around for now 32 years. And it's really about serving young people K through 12, both in school and after school. Before the pandemic hit all of us and impacted daily programming, Inner City Arts was a place where all buses came to our campus and young people would experience classes in a myriad of art forms from ceramics, media arts, photography, traditional visual arts, dance, music, theater. You had this moment where students just got to create. That's what we call it. We call it a creative space. Um, We are not necessarily pushing to make the next artist because we think all young people are artists. We think all people are creative. All adults are creative. Um, We also have a self-select program, which is after school and serves the older students um, into high school. So those are programs that have more of a focus, right? You want to try 
improv class or you want to try like our we now have a theater ensemble we have a, a dance ensemble um so it's just an opportunity to create in different forms and you can bounce around you can try as many of those forms as you want on a semester by semester basis we're important because we are embedded and we work closely with schools to make sure that those schools have arts programming not all schools in la unified or even our public charters have access to an art teacher on their campus. So we really target, like many nonprofits and similar work, we target those schools that don't have that as an option. So one of the things that you said was that somebody took a chance on you. And I've thanked many people in my life for taking a chance on me. And it's it's really important. I think I am who I am because of my uh, fifth grade teacher who truly took a chance on me. And I'm curious who you want to thank who took a chance on you? For I mean, like in the immediate, just in talking about my career path. So Cynthia Campoy Brophy, who is the founder of the Heart Project slash Artworks LA, she took a chance on me. And every time I came to her with like a, I want to do this. She'd be like, okay, okay, Shelby, you know? And <laughs> funny story. I actually quit Artworks LA, I think twice and always came back. Um, and she would just welcome me back. So Cynthia really, she was there. And those moments where I was like, I don't know if I could do this anymore. She would say, okay, like you can quit tonight and then you just come back tomorrow. <laughs> no, and that, that works. Um, so definitely Cynthia. I think also at the beginning of my career when I was a traveling dance teacher, Leah Bass Bayless, who ran the VAPA program at LA Unified. She ran the dance program for the traveling dance teachers. She was another one that was like, you do what you got to do, right? Because I came to her after, you know, she recruited me to be a dance teacher. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to travel and teach dance anymore. I actually want to do dance in a different way. And she was like, I got you go for it. And that also taught me leadership. I've had really positive experiences with my bosses who can take that moment and say, okay, go for it. And I find myself doing that when someone tells me they're going to leave, like, I'm happy for you. If you're leaving to go pursue something else, I am here for that. I fully support that. I agree. I tell our staff all the time, like, hey, I know you're not going to be with us forever and that's fine, but use me, use us for anything you need to be able to grow in life. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. So I hope that people who listened to you just now were as uh, fascinated and just um, really mind blown by you, like my staff is, where can we find you online? What is your website? We're inner-cityarts.org. Awesome. Easy to find us. Even if you just typed it out without the dash, we'll pop up. Innercityarts.org. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate having you. Is there any last minute jewel of uh, anything that you want to share with members of our audience before I let you go? Well, thanks for having me. This was really fun. I totally had a good time. And you know what? This is it. I'll sign off. All right, Zelby. Thank you. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what'd you think of our episode with Shelby? Again, I think all of our listener out there can agree that 
Shelby's amazing. It's not hard to see why she's beloved and why she rocks at her job leading inner city arts and what a great organization that is. Like you, Matt, I particularly enjoyed the Matt's Plane segment. When I was listening to the episode the first time, I stopped and I went and looked up. Shit hits the fan. <laughs> and so no one quite knows the origin. Like there's a lot of different theories. One theory is that there was a joke about a guy pooping in a hole in the floor. <laughs> and like apparently that hole was above a ceiling fan. Okay. And so that happened and we can all just imagine. But essentially, however it came to be, shit hitting the fan is just an expression to say that a whole lot of mess was made when things got out of control. So I have so many things to ask you. So many things to ask you. Number one, why would somebody take a shit in a ceiling on top of a ceiling fan? <laughs> that, that's like number number one. Or is it number two? By the way, I think that's hilarious. If you just if you just stop and think about that for one second, so you're at home or you're at the office, it's hot and you turn the fan on because it's hot, right? And you're just, you're, you're doing your work or you're watching TV, maybe you're eating dinner. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you start smelling something and then shit hits your face. <laughs> I, I don't even understand how that's possible. Also, why would that guy be on top of your ceiling taking a shit on your fan? That's my question. <laughs> I can only imagine that this would be like, at like an old saloon or a brothel or something. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many things to think about when we're talking about somebody taking a dump above a ceiling fan in a bar. I just, so many questions. And then, and then my second question, Ashley, am I ever going to get a client ever again here at Envision Consulting when we start talking about shit hitting the fan <laughs> and someone taking a dump while you're drinking a drink at a bar? Is this it? Are we done? I mean, forget getting another client. I don't think my mom is ever going to listen to this show again. Uh -oh. So, I, no, uh -oh. like, I think let's start there, and then and then we'll work our way towards getting you some more clients. I don't know. I hope people have as good of a sense of humor as we do about these things. Okay, let me tell you though. I do have to say my favorite story with regards to the expression "shit hits the fan" was a colleague that I worked with at my old school. I'll never forget, she was telling us a story and she was describing whatever happened and she goes, and then the shit hit the you know what. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm going to use that actually. And it was a complete, like, she was not doing that to be funny. Like, she knew she wasn't supposed to say one of those words and she just confused which word she shouldn't that's it that's it I love it so here's the thing my hope is that we make it to season four assuming that Envision could keep getting clients and if we do season four episode one is great it is with your friend which it's shocking to me that you have any after this and why don't you and why don't you tell our listener if they're left uh, about Jasmine I absolutely will. And I also want to just throw the disclaimer to Allison and Suzanne, your partners at Envision Consulting, that I apologize right now for my role in us never getting any more clients <laughs> since this podcast was really intended to do the opposite. Just a disclaimer out there. Now, our first interview of season four is with my friend and just all around amazing human, Jasmine Schuper. And Jasmine is the founder 
of an organization called the Green Line Foundation. It is an organization devoted to combating redlining, which is the use of racial discrimination in housing that has pervaded our country for far too long. Yeah, it's a great episode. It's a phenomenal organization. It's actually a very educational interview because I don't think many people understand what redlining means, that it's still around, by the way, in deeds, that they still haven't been able to, to strike some of that language. And just what she's doing to combat it and to right that wrong is so impressive. Also, she's a founder. And I love interviewing founders because, as you know, it's impossible to start a nonprofit. So it's a really cool episode. She's pretty spectacular. Oh, and here's the thing, Ashley. And then we're going to let our poor, poor listener go. She's a member of a church. And I was like, you need every one of your church friends to listen to this show so that we actually do become top 10 in the country. So my question is, if if we do become top 10 in the country, and then people go back and listen to this conversation, how long are we going to stay top 10? I don't know. But I think we need to promise Jasmine right now, because she's probably listening to this episode, that we will not talk about shit when all of her church friends listen to the next episode. (laughs) Fair. We will keep it a little more PG for that episode. It's going to be God all day long. All right, Ashley, I am so proud of us for making it to the end of season three, for going on to season four, and just for, for having so much fun. So hopefully we will continue to get clients so we can continue this show. And is there anything else that you'd like to leave with our listener before we go? It's been a ride, Matt, and I can't wait for season four. I really love what we're doing and where we're going. So with that in mind, everyone... Again, you can always find us at EnvisionNonprofit.com for more information about this show, other shows from the past, and about Envision. You can also find us on the social media platforms, especially on Instagram, and our show streams on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening.